Welcome everyone to Glam City, where we curate audio on the glam sector. That is galleries, libraries, archives and museums. I'm Anna Clark. And I'm Tamsin Peach. And today's episode is a little treat. Please explain. Well, last week, if you were on the Twitter, you would know that we hosted (laughs) our first ever Glam Slam. And tickets sold out really quickly a month in advance and we found ourselves turning people away. So if you couldn't make it to Glam Slam, today you get a second chance. Wow, that is better than watching, you know, tennis in the High Ace Arena. It is definitely better than watching tennis in the High Ace Arena, which I I recognise is a huge compliment for me. (laughs) Uh, It was a pretty amazing day, I have to say, and I'm still sort of riding on a high. And during the day, we hosted a panel discussion called Glam WTF. The glam sector, as you know, if you listen to this show, is made up of a variety of different kinds of public collecting institutions, often with really varied remits and missions. Yet, galleries, libraries, archives and museums are all facing challenges as funding landscapes shift and digital technologies bring new opportunities and demands. And increasingly, they're grouped together, we group them together, and asked to act in concert. So we wanted to get together a panel of people from across the different institutions in the sector and ask them to take on some of these questions about the tensions between GLA and M and what opportunities there might be for people to work together. Yeah, I really like this panel. It was a real highlight for me for Glam Slam and it featured uh, Maggie Patton from the State Library of New South Wales, Julia Mant, who's the archivist at NIDA, and you might remember Maggie and Julia from our first season. Joining them were Marcus Hughes from MAS, Museum of Arts and Applied Sciences, Don DeGravio from the University of Newcastle Library, and Jansen Hughes from the Sydney Living Museums. Let's join Jansen and Marcus for their discussions around critical engagement and authorship in the glam sector. So we have now Glam WTF, um, which was my title. I was quite pleased by that. What doesn't it stand for? <laughs> That's right. Thinking on the fly there. What, What's yeah. the fuss? What's the fuss? <laughs> Usually it stands for where's the females, but, <laughs> but not in glam. So we wanted to think here about some of the tensions um, in the sector, some of the challenges, and we asked you what they were, and this is what you told us. This is some of the things you told us. Funding and research source constraints. I reckon that was about 50% of the about 50 responses talked about resource constraints. Making collections visible and accessible. Skills development, especially in digital conditions of work for people like you, uh, for workers in, in institutions. Big intellectual and existential visions. And that was also, that came through and I reckon uh, nearly at least 50% of responses. <laughs> Um, the lack of a forum across GLAM for connecting, which obviously we are solving already today. Ways of engaging with policymakers and ways of working with volunteers, those were themes, not by no means the only ones. So what's going to happen is I'm going to let them have their mics for five minutes each in response to um, the sort of theme of the paragraph, these questions of tensions and, and, and WTF. And then we will have a brief discussion amongst ourselves um, for the rest of the remaining hour, so probably 20 minutes. And then there's half an hour for discussion with you. I'm going to have to move slightly across there. Oh, okay. Okay. Hi, everyone. We're sharing resources here in GLAM. Very resourceful. Um, Collaborate. I think it's fantastic that everyone's here this morning and, and 
recognition to those who've organised it for bringing everyone together into the one space. And um, I, I, let me just put it out there that this morning, uh, my wife's getting induced. We're about to have our second kid, so if my phone suddenly rings oh, and I disappear. But I, I do think that's testament to the, the personality and the type of people that work in the glam sector, such as yourselves. They're passionate, they're committed, they're slightly crazy and they're resilient. So I think um, a credit to yourselves. Um, so in terms, hands up amongst us who thinks the arts provide a rich and more meaningful life. Okay. So we're amongst friends Actually, here. keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. <laughs> Hang on, I've got to work my technology. It's not staged at all. <laughs> um, and that was a... That's, we're amongst friends here, and I think that's particularly telling, because the Australian Council have done a number of these studies over time, and the participation rate in the arts is, is recognised by Australia as something that's, that's rich and meaningful, and about that critical engagement is... is something that all of the glam sector in its all its diversity can provide and I think um, the, the testament to that's in this room um, and in particular the um, the point around civic engagement so if you talk about life being more rich and meaningful it's around the opportunity to engage in civic society social capital and cultural capital and we effectively are engine rooms for that very thing and I think civic engagement is perhaps one of the greatest motivations for, for why I'm in the sector and, and why, what excites me and notions of agency is particularly exciting and I think um, for people to have enrichment through engaging with all the assets that we have here, and I sort of look at them as assets because they're kind of the, the, the raw assets that you use for inspiration and, and participation. And an agency brings together our collections, the skills and expertise of, of curators, archivists, librarians, etc. but then also the creativity and, and um, enthusiasm of our audiences. So you bring all those resources together and you've got yourself a very heady mix. And I think that's really what we're very much about. Um, and I think we can have a tendency to um, spread ourselves too thin. And, and we sort of talked about the, the limits and resources. And I think um, a lot of collaboration and partnership can be made through, through ourselves because the glam sector, I guess, in a way, we're kind of culturally Switzerland. We, we don't necessarily have any agendas. We can partner with, with other organisations which might be more difficult. Uh, potentially, we can attract funding in new ways in that way. Um, and we can be a safe place for, for dangerous ideas, particularly because we're, we're seen as a, in, in, to some extent as having an independent voice. That also comes with, with responsibility as well. And authorship is a particularly challenging thing for, for museums and how much we engage with our audiences to, to co-produce and co-create some of that meaning around the assets that we talk about, whether it be the collections, the archives, etc. Um, so I, I do think the notion of collaborating to compete is, is something that um, maybe you sort of hinted at there, and I think that's something that's particularly strong within, within the sector, um, as well as um, the, the idea that through those collaborations you're going to get much more greater impact. Um, I think meaningful engagement is, is really critical, so access. So David Carr, I don't, people might be familiar with him, but he sort of talked about museums aren't for, for everyone, but they should be for anyone. So that's really for, for, for what we do, providing that access and opportunity is, is critical. Uh, if, if you go back to the point I was making at the beginning, that participation in the arts enriches lives, so you've got to provide that access. Um, and access can come in a bunch of different ways, and we've sort of talked about that today. Uh, and digital is one of them, and, and obviously the digital literacy that you need to, to engage with those assets is, is really important. But um, 
New engagement is often broadening access. It's making the content and the things that we do more relevant to, to our public's lives. And um, I just wanted to, to finish up by tying together what I was saying with, with an example, um, which um, I've got down here. These are, this is a program, and, and Paul Donnelly is in the, in the audience? Yep, Paul. Um, so in, a number of years ago, in my former life at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences with Marcus, um, for Sydney Design, I did a program called Hack the Collection. So it was around providing new opportunities for audiences to engage with the collection that they might not otherwise have done. And that sort of hinted at, at giving over the collection to provide new meaning and new construction of that meaning. So uh, we were digitising our collection uh, in 3D and I thought, well, let's invite a number of designers across Sydney to come in and we gave them the 3D files and, and over two days they, they hacked those collection objects. So we invited the public in to watch that and see the process and ask questions because 3D printing a number of years ago was, was still very confusing for a lot of people. Um, so they sort of got an insight into the cultural production that was going on um, and then we had curators such as Paul come and, and I'm not even going to pretend I remember what this one is, but uh, in terms of giving that deep knowledge and understanding in, in inspiring and what might the designers do to take these objects into new directions. Uh, and over the space of two days, they, they reconfigured more or less the, these designs. Um, these are the actual originals. So this is a, a Wedgwood sugar bowl. Um, and and the, the guy who worked on this was an architect who created, in the time he was there, in the two days, he spent all his time creating a mathematical algorithm to, to reconfigure the pattern that was on the outside of that. And then at the end of the, the two days, we um, printed those and displayed them alongside the original and invited the public in to look at those. So all of a sudden, um, we were, were able to give the collection new meaning. Uh, the interpretation, the creative interpretation was displayed. So you had a conversation around what's the original, what's the artifact, what's the interpretation. And possibly the most exciting thing for me, and it's around access, was I put these files uh, through Creative Commons licensing uh, on, on Thingiverse as well as our museum website. And I got an email a number of months after by a, a, a fellow in Canberra who'd been using these files to create in, in his um, work with museums to create workshops for people with vision impairment. And he'd basically taken the files and bumped the resolution up on it. So it was a tactile experience. And he came back to me and said, oh, look, do you mind um, if we do this? And I'm, I was like, wow, that was never uh, the thought or the intention with what might have happened to these. And I think going back to the point around relevance, you need to make the assets and the things that you do relevant for a number of different audiences and give them over in, and release some of that control and, and open yourself up to what might be a new opportunity. Fantastic. Thank you. <clears throat> Marcus Hughes. Hi. Thank you, Cam. If you'd asked me three years ago what I'd be doing, this is the last thing that I would have said I would be doing. Um, I'm, I'm a newbie to the, the, the glam sector. I've got a background in small to medium arts, organisation, management and advocacy. But I'm, I'm, I guess more than that, um, my heritage is Mananjali, um, a descendant of the Yugambeh Nation in what is now South East Queensland. And it is my protocol that I will always acknowledge the traditional owners, the Gadigal, of the land that we meet on and acknowledge their elders past and present. And in doing that, I, I acknowledge the permissions that I'm given um, to come onto country and to speak and do the work that I need to do 
in saying that, I also acknowledge my own ancestors that come with me and sit beside me, and I acknowledge my brothers and sisters that are in the room today. Um, having had a scan of the room, it looks like we're sitting just a little below the national average um, and the target for equity, um, but we will get there. Yesterday, I, I received an email from TAB asking for my, my notes for today's presentation. And um, we're preparing for Sydney Design Festival and meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And I, I just really had to quickly say, um, yeah, no notes. I'm, I really just yarn with the ancestors and whatever comes out, comes out, and I hope it's going to be appropriate. And if it's not, I'm really, really sorry. Um, that was actually the subtext. I didn't get that far in the, in the conversation on the email. And then I realised I was going to lie um, and that I'd lied to you, Tamsin. I'm so sorry. Um, but in the last 48 hours, there's been an incredible piece of writing that has spoken to me um, in relatively um, profound ways. They're words by one of my brothers, um, Brother Boys, in, in, who's based in Melbourne. And I'd really like to share that with you. So it's really about the performing arts, but I hope that somewhere in this little yarn you might see something that will speak to you. Bringing it back to the, to the Maz, we, we have an incredible collection of, of glass plates, part of the general collection, and there are about 1,500 um, unidentified Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people contained in those images. And some of them um, relate to a chap called Meston, who created a bit of a show last May in Melbourne. Three of my former students, um, they oaked up, they wore nagas, and they chained themselves. And that walk took them to the steps of the State Library. It was pretty profound and incredibly proud of them. So, here's a little story. Last May, Jack Shepherd, Suigansard and Benjamin Creek walked the length of Swanston Street in Melbourne's CBD, finishing on the steps of the State Library. The piece was called Wild Australian Tour, presented as part of Yurimboy First Nations Arts Festival, and it was developed in response to archives Jack had unearthed while researching the stories of his ancestors and his family. In 1892, 22 men, four women and one child from various language groups around far north Queensland and from Murlag in the Torres Strait Islands were forcibly abducted and placed in change by Archibald Meston, a Scotsman who would later become the chief protector of Aborigines. They were forced to rehearse traditional dances in the cane fields, a cut and paste of the different mobs, song cycles and stories. The Wild Australia performance toured Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. It played to great acclaim and made Meston a wealthy man. While the show enjoyed huge success, the treatment of Meston's performers became less and less socially acceptable. In Melbourne, a complaint was made about the dancers being chained up and there was a public outcry. Meston disbanded the troupe and returned to Queensland. The dancers were abandoned in Melbourne defend for themselves. They became buskers, running their own show, and at each stop they earned enough to feed themselves and to travel to the next town. This extraordinary capacity for survival 
for resilience, ingenuity, adaptability and brilliance is a reminder to First Nations brothers and sisters that we always find a feed. We will always find shelter, even if it's under a blanket of a million skies and stars shining above. And we can always find our way home. Some of us already have, some of us are still searching. All of us, all of us are at different stages in that journey. <laughs> this part of our history is unfortunately not unique. We have an almost 200-year-old history of what can be described as international arts touring. We are probably the first international arts exports of this uh, colonised country. In the early 1800s, we entertained the elite in Germany, in England, North America, and most notably in return seasons to the Paris World Fair. Our culture, songs and dances intrigued, delighted, tantalised audiences desiring a closer, more intimate but safe encounter with the exotic the native, the savage, and the other. I raised the Wild Australia Tour and the international export of blackfella arts and culture within the context of an arts market that seeks to question its conventions and its future. Because I have to ask, has much really changed? If most of this sector is made up of non-Indigenous buyers and presenters, some of whom are in the market for Indigenous work for presentation in non-Indigenous venues, there's still no black performing arts venue in this country. And the work needs to suit the performing arts venue and the interests and the thematics, the politics, the education and the bottom lines of a non-Indigenous presenter, programmer and their audiences, then what is, are we as First Nation creators and arts workers other than pawns in a capitalist system that continues to trade on the exploitation of human labour for profit and the commodification of our culture for entertainment. The men and women of the Wild Australia Tour did not have a choice. As First Australian artists today, how complicit in this system have we become and what are our choices? I'd like to give just one example of how this sector could be interpreted from a First Nations perspective. Whitefellas still has curatorial control of performing arts venues. Whitefellas still programs black stories written or directed by whitefellas and determines the black narratives that audiences engage in. Blackfella gets busy making that kind of work, the kind of narrative that intrigues, delights, traumatises, tantalises and satisfies the curious mind about blackfellas' culture, identity, traditions and modernity. Blackfella gets an opportunity to pitch his work. Whitefellas says, not Aboriginal enough. True story. Blackfella has another go. Whitefella says, now I want you to condense 70,000 years of ancestral lineage, of continuous culture and creative practice, of complex totemic skin and ceremonial systems, complicated by 229 years of colonisation, survival, government and social policy that continues to actively oppress your peoples and sovereignty into a two-minute marketing blurb. <laughs> make it exciting and make it accessible. Then the white fella asks, what's your community engagement strategy? Black fella, eh? White fella. How would we contextualise this for non-Indigenous audiences? And can you help us bring your mob in to see more of our work? Black fella stops being an artist and gets busy creating education and learning tools to do the work white fella could have done 40 to 60 years ago when the bans on Blackfella entering civic spaces was finally lifted. Whitefella, oh, and do you know such and such? And, and Blackfella goes, that's my cousin. Blackfella hands over networks and numbers and more networks and more numbers, and before Blackfella knows it, that phone is ringing. 
a real relationship is building. Blackfellow getting asked which show is a good show and who Whitefellow should get in and what protocols go here and what best practice could go there. And one day, Whitefellow rings up. We thought it'd be a great time to rename some of our spaces. We could rename the bar Nyagi. It's a local name for ceremony. Wouldn't that be great? Again, a true story. And can you teach me how to do welcoming language? Blackfellow says, hmm, but really thinking, so you want to name this place where people sit and get pissed after the mob's most significant ceremonial gathering? The ceremony Whitefellow banned back in the 1800s, completely altering the local economy, trading practices and protocols around the sharing of knowledge and law. Blackfellow then says, um, this is not my country. You need to speak to auntie so-and-so about that. But auntie, she got strong opinions on people speaking her language, just so you know. It's nice that Whitefellow showing an interest and all, but mob can't even speak language yet. We're still recovering language. It was banned and beaten out of our old people over 100 years ago. Whitefellow. Oh, it's so complicated. The protocols, the consultations, it's all just so complex. We just want to do the right thing, Blackfella. Then you need to listen, really listen. Here's an idea. Seeing as no one's going to hand over any of their venues to, to construct a purpose-built Blackfella space so we can lead our sector into the next level, how about you make a space in yours and get a whole mob of us in there and Blackfellow can lead and manage Blackfellow business, our way, Whitefellow. That's a great long-term goal, but we only just got our reconciliation action plan over the line and the board is concerned and that took four years. Um, have you been in to see a show lately? We've got auntie um, so-and-so doing pre-recorded welcomes before each show now. Blackfellow, yeah, I heard it last time you had a Blackfellow show in there about two years ago. Whitefellow, it's great, isn't it? Blackfellow. So what do you think about the idea, Whitefellow? Like I said, it's going to take work. It's going to take a great long-term goal to have. So let's keep the conversation going, Blackfellow. So you want to do the right thing, yeah? Whitefellow. But of course, Blackfellow. Oh, just not right now. Thank you. Thank you for lying to me, Marcus. That was great. <laughs> um, brilliant. So I'm going to give you a chance to reply to each other. But one of the things I'm hearing here, one of the tensions, is on the one hand, there's this great call for the cultural institution as a public square, as a public place. And, and that's, um, <coughs> that's possibly something we don't hear enough of you know, from, from within. Um, because we have often, like universities, adopted the language of the market. And we heard the problems about seeing culture as a form of consumption. And there's a real tension there. And obviously, all our institutions dance along those lines. So uh, I was just drawing out the tension between the marketization of culture and seeing it as something we consume, which um, Marcus you know, critiqued really heavily, um, but also this great call for the, the cultural institution as a public institution that forces us into engagement with each other in the public square. I do think, I mean, around the, the, the resourcing side of it, and that's a, a great example, and I think there's other ways that we can, looking at the sort of volunteer capacity, and there's people here from the Australian Museum in terms of their volunteering program, people are doing really interesting work in that space, and if you think on a global perspective, um, Citizen science is, a, is one example of ways in which things can be 
done resourcefully and sustainably, and, and one particular one that, that I'm involved with, is people might have heard of Zooniverse, so there's one called Old Weather that I've been involved with, which is really exciting. It's, it's the archival elements, it's, it's annotating. As a, as a punter, you, you're annotating these logbooks from ships in the 16th century that tell this amazing social history. Uh, so you get this insight, like, what was the weather like on that day? What happened on that day? What happened with the captain? It's slightly gamified, so it's, it's, it's engaging. I'm not being technologically positivist here because it covers a lot of what we do, but the, the end product is as you sort of evolve over time, you're actually archiving and, and, and transcribing these ancient artifacts. And the data that comes out of that's used for climate modeling into the future. So it's basically saying, what was weather like? And it comes back to your point of telling the story of the past, but it's in doing so, it gives you the data sets to predict what's the climate going to be like into the future. And I think that's, I mean, that covers so many exciting areas in terms of resourcing and assets and engagement. It's kind of big gold. Can I just throw um, one in? I, I think one of the profound um, issues facing the sector is how we engage meaningfully with people who do not know the sector. One of the, the critical issues in terms of engagement for us in the CIs is that are working in that targeted um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander space is how do we make a journey to the Powerhouse Museum a priority in the minds of families and communities who are working desperately to prevent their young ones from killing themselves, to find housing, to feed their family. I guess I come from not a glam background and that's why the notion of glam sits in a funny place for me. And I would imagine there is a very broad community that see that as a place of privilege that is not for them. How do we change that? How do you change that? Thank you. Just, just one last, last little point. Um, and it, it, it came to me through a, a conversation about leadership and cultural obligation. And again, coming back to all those, those things about having conversations and building those relationships, um, I know for mob that are in the room today, um, going into the temple on a daily basis um, can be really isolating when you're the only black fella in the village. Um, and being able to connect with, with mob um, and listen to mob and have those conversations um, always reminds me that I am not alone in that space and I think that's really, really critically important to realise that you are not alone and that it is a shared obligation and a cultural mandate for you in this space. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. We'll have more from our live recording of Glam Slam soon, including maybe a couple of snippets and teasers from the day itself. If you'd like to hear more from us, like us at the Australian Centre for Public History Facebook page. Hit like, hit like again, and then hit like again. Or head to the 2SER website. That's 2SER.com. You can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. And hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me under at Anna Hope Clark. And me, Tamsin Peach, at Cap and Gown. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. 
you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at glamcity at 2ser.com. Glam out. Glam out. 